Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alex and I are extremely excited. We have one of our favourite historians back on with us. Alex, who have we got on? Oh, Bethany Hughes is back. Yay! Yay! (laughs) Bethany is on a mission to make people not scared of big Greek books from many, many, many years ago. Um, She's on the Odyssey at the moment and it's brilliant. So if you haven't been watching her television series, uh, if you can get over your massive jealousy for all the fun she's obviously having on this program um, and all of the nice sunny Greek islands she's on, it's fantastic. (laughs) Oh, we love it. That's so true. It's so funny because we were filming that just just before um, Corona and COVID really broke. So mm. our last day of filming was the first day that all the we are closed notices were being put up on all the sites um, across Greece. So we got home, you know, with hours to spare. And when we were making it, I love these stories. They're completely relevant to us today. I just wanted them to be as accessible and, you know, friendly and immersive as possible. And the second we got back to the UK and we realised everybody, there was going to be this lockdown, we said, oh my God, everybody's just going to hate us. Because we were like going, these are places you too can go. <laughs> now it's like, look where I am and while you're stuck <laughs> at home. I know. I'm so, so I just like to say publicly, I am really, really sorry for that. And that wasn't the purpose at all. Oh. But eventually, eventually. Eventually, eventually, people will be able to, to go back. How much fun did you have making it? What was the best thing you filmed? Oh, you know, it was. I know it's a re- really overused phrase, sort of journey of a lifetime, but it really was because you know, I've been reading these stories since I was 12. And what I love about them is that they're almost history by accident. So it's not history. You know, the Odyssey isn't a, is absolutely not a history book. Odysseus... It's almost certainly not a single individual character, although there were Bronze Age heroes and Iron Age heroes like him um, and adventurers. But the um, just being able to experience that, you know, I, I, we went by boat and the power of the sea, you know, just being out at night on a little sailing ship, actually with dolphins with us, that was pretty pretty oh i love that that in a man i love it when they chase you oh so i'm playing with us and they did this whole really gnarly journey that we had for seven hours Mm. um from ikaria to mykonos in very high winds so there's the wave the swell was kind of between six meters and nine meters so that is pretty wow how Um, scared were you at that point because i was terrified watching you were you you know it's so interesting isn't it that i I'm not being, I'm not, you know, being ridiculous. I wasn't scared because I just became very zen. And I thought, there is nothing I can do about this. 
And we've got a captain who has spent his life sailing these waters. Um, our drone operator was actually ex-Navy as well. So we knew we had our cameraman um, can sail. So I just thought the, I'm with the best possible people in this very, very dangerous situation. So you just have to, the last thing you, you should do is panic. I know that's an obvious thing to say, mm. but it was really interesting. It was kind of quite liberating way, just <laughs> moon and the dolphins and the waves. You know. So I wasn't, I wasn't scared. I mean, me, um, got a brilliant series producer called Anna, Anna Thompson, who's become a real sort of mucker. And we were, I have to say, although she's half Spanish and Catalan, but actually um, we were, uh, we did, we were a bit sort of British about it in a slightly, we're fine, but we're not really sort of like, ha ha, you know, if only we had a gin and tonic and nuts right here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we just sort of kept going through. Um, yeah. We just kept each other going through laughter. Although, all the crew, all the Greek crew were being throwing up. So there's a bit in the film where I say I'm covered in somebody else's sick. And I mean, I was, I was underplaying how covered I was in everybody else's <laughs> oh, sick. <laughs> I was going to, I said, was that your Faye Dunaway moment? Cause we always ask the actor people that when they come on, what's the point where you wanted to just throw it all down and go, this is shit. I'm going home. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I just, well, I sadly though could not do that because I, I was, I would have died immediately. In my yeah. <laughs> So I really did have to go. But um, no, but it was so, you know, in answer to your question, just that whole thing of, you know, those stories, those myths, they're a whole mix of things. They're obviously uh, just thoughts about the world and how people behave and uh, fantastical explanations for things and just rip roaring good stories in their own right. But a lot of them are definitely also um, ways of delivering kernels of truth about mm. the experience of the of the deep and ancient past, both of the people who set them down and wrote them, and them describing lives a thousand years before they set them down and wrote them. So it's sort of an, you know this oral history tradition. So so just doing all that and really, as I said, really imagining those traders and adventurers and raiders from the Bronze Age who kind of shaped civilizations um, as we know them. Uh, you know really shocking stuff to uh, there's there's a, in a forthcoming um episode we look at this human sacrifice on um crete so there's been a massive earthquake and this, the floors have split open and there's mass animal sacrifice of kind of goats um goats and sheep and um uh, oxen but there's also a young woman who's been killed um and I mean, it's very, it's very gruesome. She's, she's, she's very high born. You can tell it's a very good skeleton. So she was, she was obviously very well fed, but that suddenly that reality from 3,300 or 3,200 years ago matches exactly with the stories that you hear um, in the Trojan War epics. So of the Phigenia being sacrificed by her dad, Agamemnon, of Polyxena, the, the kind of betrothed lover of Achilles, either killing herself or being sacrificed on his altar. So these young women in extreme moments being offered up to the gods. So so I think just, the, just that, but having the chance to find these moments that are often from prehistory, so we often don't have writing about them, but then match the stories that were thought to be the really important stories to pass down and tell i think i think overall as a historian those were the those were the amazing uh, the amazing really really moving and unforgettable moments um 
Okay, so this is Channel 5 at 9 o'clock on a Friday, isn't it? It is, yes. It is. For the next four weeks, I think, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. So shall we break down for people then? Let's tell people about the Odyssey. So it's not a big scary book of highbrow stuff they should be afraid of, is it? What is the Odyssey? What's the background to it? So, well, the basic background to the story is that Odysseus, the hero, Greek hero uh, and warrior, Odysseus, wily Odysseus, famous for his wit and will as well as his brawn, um, has been fighting in this desperate ten-year war at Troy, the siege of Troy, in order to get back Helen of Troy, actually Helen of Sparta, so she starts out life in Sparta, um, and she's elopes with Paris, the prince of Troy, and the aim of this um, war is to get her back to Sparta and to her husband Menelaus and Odysseus is one of the key characters uh, he's you know he he's become almost the most human of all the men who appear in both um, the Iliad and the Odyssey because he's very flawed um, he's very resourceful he tries to kind of deal with the world using his own um, acumen and acuity so so he's a really interesting character he is not a role model lots of people have said to me oh is he, is he your favorite hero is he a role model he is absolutely not a role model <laughs> because he's a nightmare you know and he slaughters at will and takes women um, we talk about the fact that he's basically described as a, as a pirate and pirates is a um, an ancient Greek word and it means people who attack uh, without permission um, so it does mean it's not a kind of formal war situation that they're they're attacking and raiding and, and Odysseus was definitely a pyro it's one of the original pirates but also one of the original adventure action heroes so on his way home uh, to his beloved wife Penelope in Ithaca which is an island to the far west of Greece uh, he sets sail he's kind of trundling home with his um, his crew and his other sailors on other ships and basically gets thrown of course by all manners of trials and temptations and traumas including massive storms like the ones that we sailed through um, we also go to Crete in this in this series and uh, which is very tied up with the stories from Troy and the Iliad and the Odyssey and there was a huge storm there as well I mean it's definitely climate change there's no doubt about it we were there in January and they said it's never like this and it was a storm that was 10 on the Beaufort scale and 12 I think is hurricane force so it's really really massive and those storms are described in the Odyssey and they describe the kind of waves um, that rear up and attack islands like Crete so anyway so he gets swept of course by storms by meeting monsters um, he <laughs> by, you know, falling for women. So famously Calypso, the sort of nymph Calypso, um, uh, uh, really sort of attracts him onto her island and he feels, he finds he can't leave and they make love for seven years every night. And then eventually he goes, oh! He must have been exhausted by the end of that. <laughs> no. He says, actually, I... I really love Penelope. I must get back to Penelope. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I'm just going to sleep with a couple of women along the way. And yeah. then well, exactly. Definitely not a exactly, role model. Exactly. Definitely. Definitely not a role model. Although the Calypso story is also really interesting because she offers him immortality. And he, the sort of moral of the story really is that he chooses life with all its challenges and rubbishness over 
the perfection of the possibility of immortality in heaven. It's that really interesting thing that it's better to live and suffer than, than just to sort of live in a kind of aspic Elysian field. So, um, yes, anyway, so he's not a role model, but, oh, my God, he had adventures on the way back from Troy to Ithaca. The story, though, it's not just about Odysseus's journey home because there's a lot more going on back home in Ithaca. Can you tell us a bit more about that part of the story? Yeah, well, so so Paul Penelope, um, you know, he's a king, Odysseus, of this little island, not particularly um, wealthy. It's described as goat, not stallion land um, by his son Telemachus. Um, but it's an influential island and it has resources. And in the 10 years that Odysseus has been away, uh, basically the young men of the island and the other islands around, the, the young nobles, are circling around Penelope, trying to force her um, into giving up on Odysseus and marrying them, which will mean that they will inherit um, the territory and the wealth of Odysseus's kingdom. And uh, Penelope has been managing to keep them at bay. She's weaving a shroud um, uh, for Laertes and every night she goes and unpicks it she says once I finish this then I'll be ready to marry you but but she goes and cleverly unpicks it every night um, so I, it's, it's a it's a really you know in terms of a kind of rip-roaring story it's really chilling this because you can just sense this horrible predatory atmosphere back on Ithaca and eventually when Odysseus arrives home he turns up disguised into the palace as a beggar and doesn't reveal himself um, and it is kind of like any you know it's like any action movie really there's this the kind of terrible scene where he strings his own bow and he and, and his son Telemachus um, slaughter uh, the suitors. There's retribution against Penelope's handmaidens who are said to have slept with some of these interlopers and they're, they're hanged by a tree, uh, you know, hanged by the neck. Um, so it's a very, you know, it's a very dark tale as well. Um, and also, I think there is something really interesting about it that right at the end, I mean, people have rewritten the story. There's Margaret Atwood's brilliant Penelope ad writes the whole, the whole story from Penelope's point of view. Um, uh, and, and, you know, quite rightly, uh, people like Natalie Haynes now have picked up on this, you know, the kind of horror of the killing of the, of the handmaids, which always used to be just brushed over and just kind of talked about, like it was a, a kind of matter of fact thing. Um, but, but it's also really interesting right at the end. So you sort of think he's got home, he's made it to his wife. He really does love, he really does love Penelope. They fall in each other's arms and, and cover each other with kisses when they're reunited. But then in another version of the story, uh, we hear that actually he gets itchy feet again and he's at home for a little bit, but then he wants to go off on his, on his new adventures. So, um, you know, so it's a, it's such a rich story on so many levels. It's a, it's, as you said, it's not a heavy book. It's a real page-turner of a read, obviously, because <laughs> it's epic poetry. It's beautifully written. Oh, my goodness, you know, these kind of amazing metaphors uh, the whole time. And it's uh, kind of got, got all these incredible characters, and I said monsters and all these things we've heard of, like the Cyclops, the one-eyed giant, the Cyclops, and the Lotus Eaters. And so it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it absolutely, um, it should be devoured as, as a story, I think. There's another separate bit in there about the aftermath in Sparta, isn't there, once Helen is home? Yes, yes, exactly. Well, you see, I think this is so interesting and relevant. Um, and it's actually, 
I think it's the reason I wrote, so, I, so my first book was Helen of Troy, um, Goddess Princess Hall, and I think the reason I wrote it is actually because of the reaction to Helen once she gets home. So if you think about it, Helen of Troy, the most beautiful woman in the world, by running off and having this love affair with this um, young Trojan prince, she's kind of brought the world tumbling down. Um, all the known heroes of Greece go to fight for her. There's this horrific war. There's kind of mass destruction and dislocation um, during the war and after it, terrible slaughter in Troy itself. And Menelaus, her husband, come, finds her and uh, brings her home. And wouldn't you think, in any sort of normal retelling of that story, she would be punished for what she's done. But actually, what you hear about Helen when she returns home is that um, she's portrayed as this dignified, resourceful queen. She's back in charge of her territory, of her palace, because it was hers. She, she, it was uh, matri, matrilineal inheritance then. So she is the queen who has all the possessions, which is why Greek heroes want to try to marry her to basically get her patch. So she's back in charge. Um, she mixes up this really interesting druggy brew for the kind of war veterans. It's like the Nam vets of the Trojan War to make them forget their sorrows. And uh, truly fascinatingly, um, uh, there's been analysis of some of the pots left in the graves from the period um, and particularly in the graves of women and when you analyse them we realise that they would have been used to uh, hold huge amounts of laudanum so opiates mixed with alcohol so we think actually the women of the time so I'm talking about the, the Bronze Age so you know over 3,000 years ago probably would have been mixing up these really heady druggy brews to distribute um a that would have definitely made you forget your sorrows for a bit but also i wonder if that's where some of these stories were dreamt up because if you think about it if these palatial cultures are taking opiates on a, on a regular basis and we found um uh, carbonized um, seeds from opium poppies in the digs and jugs made in the shape of opiums uh, of opium heads and some of the women are buried with like rock crystal brooches in the shape of opium poppy heads again so it's obviously a real part of the culture if these people are drinking this stuff regularly oh my god the visions they'd have been having and i wonder if that is one of the reasons we get these incredible, heady, literally heady stories um, yeah. of the Greek myths of many-headed gods, uh, many-headed dogs and, uh, you know, kind of wild whirlpools that are actually women and, you know, all of this. So, so it's really interesting for, for lots of reasons. But, but the, the kind of, for me, historically, isn't it fascinating that, as I say, Helen is not represented as a victim or as a criminal on her return she's she's back in power and the last that we hear of her is her leading her husband Menelaus away to their bed with purple sheets which is all very sort of sexy but also uh, is telling us that she has power she's literally has uh, the kind of the purple of, of royalty and there's the um linear b to the ancient greek the, the kind of proto um, ancient greek for that 
any linear B experts listening to this are going to kill me for my pronunciation, but I think it's Wanax purpura, which means like the royal, the royal purple that was used for royalty. Anyway, so, so amazing. It's an amazing end to the story because as I said, Helen is back in her palace and she's, she's after all this, she's back in charge. Odysseus' son. Let's talk about him because yes. he then starts his own odyssey looking for his father. Yes, yeah, that's right, he does. So he goes and visits all kinds of people in search of, as you would, you know, as a son would, to try to get news of him. He, you know, have you seen him? What was the last sighting of Odysseus? Because there's been no news about him at all. And he turns up to the Bronze Age palace of King Nestor uh, in Pelos, Sandy Pelos. And of course, uh, and, and he, we're told that he goes there and Nestor gives him gives him some some news. Um, uh, and then Telemachus goes back and, and reunites with his father and together they fight the suitors. But again, for me, and actually we do this in this series, I mean, I spent a lot of time out there and I, it's, it's an incredibly rich place. The, there's, there are new archaeological digs and they've discovered, so the, the, the so-called Nestor's Palace has already been excavated, and it is an amazing palace, Bronze Age Palace. You know, <laughs> it, my God, they had quite good parties in that place because there's one room where there are, um, I think it's over 2,400 keys of, of uh, wine, jugs um and awesome. one cups i know really <laughs> awesome waiting for the kind of biggest party of all time um which we're told again happened you know feasting and drinking was very important in these palatial cultures um but there are new digs and we were so lucky so we got to be there at the time that one of these was um happening and i don't know if you remember the discovery of the griffin warrior a couple of years ago who was a bronze age warrior again from that part of the um southern Peloponnese who um so he's a bronze age burial buried with this incredible gold rings beautiful I mean the most beautiful gold rings I've ever seen um beautiful gold necklaces these um seal stones uh with with incredibly detailed um inscriptions on them I mean really really staggering and there's there's a there's a new dig which has found um uh, a burial actually that isn't so complete but it's still incredible to see so that was wonderful so we were there as the objects were coming out of the ground I mean just you know oh, wow. oh my gosh it's actually making my hairs on my back of my own neck <laughs> stand up remembering it just just seeing that stuff revealed for the first time in again in over 3,000 years um so so all these it's sort of what I, we were talking about at the beginning that all these yeah. stories they aren't history, they are myth, but they are often almost history by accident. So they give us little clues of things that were going on that uh, we then uh, find in the archaeology um, and in the historical record. Um, I mean, just one tiny example. So Odysseus is described as having a, a helmet made of boar's tusks. And uh, he, he, was, he, he also has a scar um, above his knee from a boar hunt where he was gored by a boar. And two things doing this, doing this, you know, my own odyssey. One is amazing to go and see the real boar's tusks helmets from the time that were left in graves, which are exactly as they're described in the odyssey. I mean, mm -hmm. to, the, to the last details, there is no question there that, that a real world is being remember, remembered. But not only that, um, we actually 
bumped into some guys in, in a cafe neon late at night in, in near Sparta who were going on a, on a boar hunt that weekend. And, you know, I'm a lifelong vegetarian. I've campaigned against hunting and animal cruelty, you know, all my life. But we just thought, well, what, how incredible to go and be a part of this, which is something which has been part of that tradition in that exact place for at least 3,000 years and was boar hunting was a real kind of mark of a male warrior hero because it proved that you could work with the others around you um that you had extraordinary bravery and strength um so we we went uh, along to this boar hunt in right in the forests um down in sparta and it was you know again it was horrible for me personally but really fascinating historically to see the kinds of bond there was with these men and that they had to absolutely act as a unit and and boars are a real issue there so um they uh they're a kind of you know two thousand in a tiny patch and they and they really mm. do um there, there really is an issue with them um uh, rutting up kind of farmers crops and we met, met this amazing nun who was like the softest sweetest person who wouldn't harm a fly who said even I am getting sick of the balls you know whenever I try to plant herbs to make medicines for people the balls come and come and eat them so yeah. you know so they are it, it, it is an interesting you know it's an interesting debate about whether they should be hunted but it was just incredible seeing them it was like being with this bunch of I have to say quite sort of pumped up testosterone filled yeah, yeah. men you know as they are described in the ancient in the ancient epics and you know again real danger because i mean you get humans and animals get killed by boars i mean you do not want to be in in the way of a charging angry angry boar um so all of that so it was you know you can tell oh my god i was just going and just talking to you i was, like, <laughs> I was like back there in my head now you uh, know how we feel what oh. <laughs> I know. I say, can I just say once again, I am so sorry that we had such a good time. Uninterested. You're forgiven. Oh, should we? Should we touch on a few bits of Odysseus's journey, and you can share them with people and get them excited about going to read the whole book? Should we do that? Yeah, lovely. So you've already mentioned lotus eaters. Can you tell us more about that and what happened? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Yeah, so the Lotus Eater, this is one kind of early on in the story. I mean, it's a very 
I should just sort of say, it's a very, compl not complicated, it's an interesting journey because it's not told from A to B and it's not told chronologically and a lot of it is told in flashback when Odysseus is right at, actually at the very end of his journey um, in the island that I think is probably Corfu, modern day Corfu, um, with this uh, very kind of a welcoming king who's welcomed him in and Odysseus starts to cry and to share his story in flashback. So you know we weren't just to say we weren't saying this is the route because also i think odysseus went f f much further west i think the story talks about actually going to sicily and beyond so we were really it was a more of a historical journey to, so going to the islands that mattered historically but you're right so the lotus eaters this is right very early on um we're told that he was kind of heading back and then this thing happens that again they, they get washed up um, on this foreign land. I think it's almost certainly referring to North Africa, so either Egypt or Libya. And they meet the people um, in this land who are very, very, very relaxed and happy because they are lotus eaters. So they eat the lotus. And um, uh, <laughs> Odysseus's sailors get a taste for the lotus that they are eating as well and basically want to forget their sorrows and don't want to get back in the boat and carry on with this adventurous journey home so Odysseus has to strap their strap their arms um to the, to the oars uh, to kind of force them to carry on home I think almost certainly the lotus that is being referred to is the blue lotus um okay from Egypt, which of course is very famous, uh, hugely used in the Bronze Age, turns up in all kinds of um, uh, representations from temples and engraves. And so, you know, even Tutankhamun famously was left for this kind of little offering of blue lotus, real blue lotus flowers in his grave. And the blue lotus used to grow right down the Nile. The Nile used to be thick with it. And recent analysis has shown that it definitely um, can give you a little bit of a hit, the, the lotus. So it was, it was always used as an aphrodisiac, um, as a party drug. Um, but it's, it's pretty mild, um, uh, although actually some countries today have, have now banned it because they realise it does have slightly psychotropic um, uh, uh, qualities to it. And I'm sure that that is what is that's the lotus that's being described in these stories, and and I had the um, one of my last trips to Egypt. I did actually get the chance to sniff a lotus flower, <laughs> and uh, on screen legally, all of these things. Um, oh my God, ladies! I tell you, that you want is, one? Yes, you do. Uh, I mean. They have really, it's very delicate, but this really incredible, incredible smell. And it definitely made you feel just very relaxed. You know, you know what? This sounds like to me a perfect botanical for gin. Yes. Uh -oh. Lotus flower gin. Yes. Uh -oh. Yes. I think that would be blue lotus gin. Now you're talking. I mean, I should say, because this is going out, you know, I don't want to be advising this to anybody if it's harmful. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't for do Historical that. research purposes. But for historical research, yeah, exactly. But I mean, it's almost extinct, the Blue Lotus. Yeah. Um, they, they, it's very, very, because so much of it has gone from, from the Nile. So there's this one wonderful woman who's trying to grow them again. So anyway, so I think that was what was going on with the, uh, with the Lotus. 
flowers uh, and the lotus eating. And, but it's sort of, again, part of that bigger story of temptation and, and how you should try to resist temptation, however lovely it is, mm. and you continue your journey. I think my favourite part are the cyclopses. Yeah. Tell, tell us about the one-eyed mountain. What monsters? I don't know. What would you call them? Kind of giants, really. Yeah. So they're sort of race of giants with one eye. And they're shepherds and they produce cheese and they look after sheep. And the story, again, is that Odysseus ends up on an island inhabited by these cyclops. Is this Halloumi? Just because if <laughs> it is, I'm completely on their side. <laughs> well, look, you know... <laughs> Can you see why it was hard for me to come home? Because yeah. <laughs> oh, yum. Cheese, By the way, you had, you had this amazing salad at one stage, and I was looking at it going, oh, my God, that looks just so good. I want it now. I just want, I will eat anything right now if someone else makes it for me and does the washing up after. Yeah, exactly. That's all I crave right now. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So the Cyclops there, again, it's really fascinating. So they're... They're said to be these giants. And there's a story that um, basically there's a particular cyclops called Polyphemus who really has it in for Odysseus and his, and his um, loyal crew. And he traps them in his cave and he starts to eat them one by one. And Odysseus has a very, very clever ruse of, of working out how to escape. That He works out that um, uh, he counts the sheep and goats in and out of his cave. Um, And Odysseus uh, has managed to basically to blind Polyphemus by heating up this giant wooden stake in a fire and plunging it into his single eye. Um, So Polyphemus is blind, but he's still a giant in charge of a cave with Odysseus trapped inside. So Odysseus manages to strap himself underneath um, the belly of a ram and as the ram goes out, even though Polyphemus is stroking all his sheep on their back and checking them and counting them, he obviously doesn't realise that Odysseus is dangling underneath and Odysseus escapes. Um, and he's always, uh, Odysseus has cleverly given his name as no one, nobody. So he doesn't, doesn't give his name uh, originally to Polyphemus. And so when Polyphemus is blinded, he's crying out, nobody has blinded me. Nobody has blinded me, you know, so nobody comes to his aid because they think Polyphemus <laughs> is ranting, uh, all very smart. But Odysseus has made a bit of a mistake um, in the eight. He eventually tells, he shouts out his name. But also Polyphemus is one of the sons of Poseidon, the god of the sea. And the god of the sea is furious that his uh, beloved son uh, Polyphemus has been blinded by Odysseus. So from here on in, Poseidon, the god of the sea, has got it in for Odysseus. And the one person you do not want to get on, on the wrong side it's of it. you can say, say it, it's fine. I, well, I know, I was just <laughs> myself stopping. Um, is Poseidon, the goddess. Yep. So he hounds Odysseus home, and that's why it's such a, a long and treacherous journey. Outstanding. Yeah. Um, what happens on Ithaca? Yeah, well, so he, he, he manages to make it home. I mean, he's, had a, he's already been caught up in a massive storm and turns up um, in this land where it's saying, which I think is almost certainly um, Corfu. Um, and he's rescued by the princess Nazakea, uh, who's playing, really interesting, she's playing a ball game down on the beach. And we do know that young girls in ancient Greece did play these, this particular ball game. So again, I think it's a, it's a sort of bit of history by accident. And Odysseus turns up naked and briny. He's been tossed around in the sea for three days and he's kind of half drowned. And they look after him and wash him, give, wash him down. He kind of covers his nakedness 
with an olive branch. Um, Ooh, that's and, not selling himself much. No, I need a little tree. Yeah, <laughs> bring Come me on. the largest bush on the <laughs> island. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And it's all a bit dodgy as well because she's a young princess, and sort of there's this notion that Nasker really quite likes him, and but he says, no, 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 I've got to kind of get home to to my wife Penelope. But everything is pretty perfect um, on this island. And the king looks after him. He's given everything he wants. He's, you know, given baths and oil massages. And, and again, it's, it's the kind of drama of it. It's almost like he's nearly home. And you think, oh, my God, but he's not going to make it home because he's going to stay in this sort of living paradise. But, but, but Odysseus actually does the right thing and leaves and goes to Ithaca. And as I said, he turns up. Um, disguised as a beggar um, he's recognized by his loyal dog who's been waiting for him who sort of promptly expires sort of sees him and greets at home it's very for any dog owners or pet lovers it's kind of a very weepy moment uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, and then manages basically to get in with Telemachus and they slaughter the suitors who've taken over his palace and he ends up back home with Penelope so um so it's a kind of you know as I said it's an absolute textbook story you know all all the kinds of jeopardy and tragedy and uh, you know real real life truths you know just doing the actual journey it was interesting and it was oh my god this has become so relevant in lockdown it really made me realize that you know we always say sort of home is where the heart is but you really it's sort of home is where love is that is what that is where home is it can be anywhere but as long as there's love um that 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 is home um and i don't know it just kind of seemed to teach so much about resilience and us we should never be um you know we should never be complacent we should never take things for granted because you just do not know what's around the next corner and, and of course that whole myth of atlantis talks about that we go to santorini which i'm sure when it erupted in 16, around 1615 bce i'm sure that massive 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 geoseismic event i mean huge huge power and t- terrible devastation you know the power uh, an eruption that stopped tree growth in ireland for four years mm. it was so massive and um, i'm sure that gives us the story of atlantis because there was a very sophisticated civilization culture on the island of, of Thera that gets swallowed up by the sea and um, but again that story is a story about not being complacent about not taking things for granted and pride coming before a fall so uh, you know it was as I said in a, in a funny way sort of physically living that journey made me really appreciate the deep philosophy of the myths in a, in a slightly different way almost not intellectually but just physiologically what do you uh, think is the most creative lesson we're taught in the odyssey uh, i think i think it has to be that if that there's something very hopeful about it that life might be really shit but if we have the chance to use our minds um and if we collaborate we can find solutions. And actually, you know, there's a very subtle thing in this story of Odysseus. It's often sold as just the story of this hero and his reaction to the world. But actually, time and time again, Odysseus only survives with the help of those around him and the collaboration of those around him. So, so that, for me, is the absolute take-home message that use your, use your mind 
not just to survive but to thrive but recognize you are doing this not in isolation you're doing it uh, with reference to those around you um, uh, so that it's you know getting through the dangers and traumas and trials and temptations of the world is a collaborative business definitely a lesson for right now yeah definitely a lesson for right now definitely i mean you know as i said it was you know you know that the myths are relevant and that's why they're evergreen but it that was really thrown into sharp focus by um uh uh, covid and the kind of history making epoch shaping changes that that we're seeing around us now um uh, yeah so no they are definitely they do not belong in a a, a dusty victorian book where they've no. generally been told for all the wrong reasons <laughs> they should they should um yeah they should we should live and learn live, live with them and learn from them i think that's the thing about myths they're, they're kind of tools to live with. You know, they're a very active thing. They, they don't exist. That's the point of them is that they, they change. They're dynamic and, and protein. And that is where their real strength is. It's really interesting, though, because he wouldn't have gotten so far without the help of Athena, would he? No, that's right. So exactly. So he's, you know, it's a, it's a goddess that keeps on saving him from, from these uh, terrible pickles and troubles that he gets into. And I think the pairing with Athena uh, is really important. I mean, it's partly because of the whole kind of politics of the gods and how they got involved in the Trojan War. But it's also because she's obviously the goddess of wisdom. And wisdom is absolutely, that is Odysseus's secret superpower, really, is, is the kind of power of his mind. And as I said, his kind of creative thinking, um, his creative solutions to problems. But he does that with a goddess, with the help of a, with the help of a goddess. So, yeah, I mean, we're, we're definitely, if you look at the myths as well, I mean, I'm, it's interesting finding them. There's, there is, They've come to be very misogynist often, um, but actually if you look at the kind of original versions and the original thinking, there's a lot more respect for, for women and femaleness than, than you might um, expect. Thanks so much for coming on to get us all excited about the Odyssey. Uh, I, want to run, I don't know about you, Alina, I want to run and read it now, like right now. I've read it, so uh, I can go and reread it for about the fifth time, but that's fine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've only ever got like a quarter of the way through and then been sidetracked by some World War One stuff. So it's forever yeah. got a bookmark in it about a quarter of the way through. Oh, oh. well, of course they took, you know, all of so many of those World War One uh, fighters took the Odyssey and the Iliad with them. Yeah. You know, that's what they had them under their pillows. So, um, so they were present there. Oh, no, I'm so glad you enjoyed it. And yeah, enjoy the rest of the show as well. And let's all go out, ladies. Let's go out and do our own Odyssey together. On oh, a gin Odyssey as well. Gin Odyssey. Gin Odyssey on a motorbike. Let's do it. Brilliant. I'll be the one not drinking then because I will be the one in control of a vehicle. (laughs) All right. Oh, really lovely, 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 lovely to chat and all power to you. Join us tomorrow and Alex Tejos will be joining us to talk all about Dutch collaboration in World War II, sometimes very sensitive subject. So much information here. It was a really interesting talk. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. There now follows a public service announcement.
I'm Horatia Hornblower. And I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.